Today's scripture is Mark 5, or Matthew, actually. Matthew 5, same thing. 13 through 16, basically. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Allison. Well, um, yeah, Matthew 5 is where we're at. Uh, we're doing the, the Sermon on the Mount right now. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's found in the book of Matthew, and it is the greatest sermon ever preached. It's uh, preached by Jesus. Uh, it's three, we're going to go through three and a half, four chapters of, of, of the book of Matthew in, in this time. Now, here's what's interesting to know about uh, this sermon. This sermon was the most quoted sermon uh, before the, the canon was really formed, uh, before some councils had taken place in the, the late third century and, uh, or fourth century. And, and that's, that's important for us to know because historically, the Sermon on the Mount has been used, here's a fancy $5 word, to catechize people, meaning to essentially indoctrinate uh, Christians for them to understand how we should act, what we should do. It, the Sermon on the Mount has been the go-to historically a lot for this. And so we're excited to go through it. We're going to go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, really try to break down what it is. We feel like that's the best way to approach the Bible, and so we'll continue to do uh, uh, that as we go through it. This is only the second week, and so I want to kind of recap you. If you weren't here last week, um, or maybe you were, and you still have some questions, here's where we started. Um, I wanted to start with a place. Uh, you know, last week, we had 40 minutes to go through uh, um, that passage of the Beatitudes, and I took the first probably 25 to 30 minutes um, setting it up because it requires this insane context, and here is the context. We know we live in a broken world, right? Um, And this is something that has been said from the stage often, that that we recognize that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And what I tried to put in front of us last week is because things are broken, or more appropriately, we recognize things are broken, and, and they are broken because of the one who's in charge of this world right now is not the one who is supposed to be in charge. So the principality of the air, the devil, Satan, and if you're not a Christian in here, that may sound weird to you, but he right now is running the show. And because he hates you and because he hates me, he is running it in all the wrong ways. And we feel the weight of that every single minute of every day. When someone breaks our hearts, when, when someone uh, goes against the way we feel like things should go, when we lose a family member, when tragedy hits, we recognize this is not the way that it's supposed to be. The world is broken. And what Jesus does when he comes on the scene is he says, I have come here to establish a kingdom. Now, uh, we talked about probably 25 minutes of our time, that kingdom, because um, going into Matthew 5, it is that kingdom that, that, uh, that is the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. I read from Matthew 4 last week. I want to read a part of what I read in Matthew 4, uh, just verse 23 specifically. This is what it says. And he, talking about Jesus, this is before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So here's what Jesus does. As he comes on the scene, he's announcing this kingdom. What is this kingdom? The kingdom of God is at hand. We we talked about how it's mentioned a hundred times in the New Testament. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than anything else, all other things combined. He's about this kingdom, and and we don't really know what that kingdom is. 
So I tried to put in front of us the most developed version of what that kingdom is as we as Christians uh, are are to to believe about it, how we're to see it, what it looks like. And in Matthew 4, what we see is Jesus comes proclaiming this kingdom. So he's telling us about this kingdom and he's going about healing disease and and, uh, going against darkness, casting out demons. He is showing his kingdom. So here's the, the baseline of what this kingdom looks like. In the end, Jesus recognizes or more appropriately tells us to recognize that what happened in Genesis 3 was not an L for him. You tracking? Like the dude didn't go, well, I lost that one. Let me start over. Now, though Satan thinks he's in charge and though things are broken, Jesus says, hey, I have a way that is the way things are supposed to be. And that is the kingdom of God. Now, this is really weird because there's two aspects to this kingdom that um, can, can frustrate us. One is that we as Christians believe that that kingdom is not something we escape from here to. That, that it's not, not, not just in heaven, but we believe it's here on earth. The problem is it's invisible. We talked about how that makes us look crazy. That right now we as Christians are the first fruits to experience what the kingdom of God is. But one day, one day, it will be physical. Like according to Revelation 21 in 2 Peter 3, we recognize, though, um, though it's important for us to see that when we die, we will go to heaven. That's not the end of the story. And some of us have held to an escapism that's grossly unbiblical. So we believe that when we die, we're going to go to heaven and spend all eternity in heaven. And that's just not the biblical story. When we die, we will be for, before the Lord. We will be in the presence of the Lord. But the reality is, when it's all said and done, God reminds us through the blood of Jesus Christ that he did not just come to save us from sin, but he came to eradicate sin. So he doesn't wash his hands, come Genesis 4. Rather, he says, I'm fixing that. I'm fixing that. The brokenness between you and your neighbor, between you and God, between you and yourself, between you and creation, I'm fixing that. I didn't come just to save you from sin, to get you out of here. I came to eradicate it. So I'm not coming just to make new things. I'm coming to make all things new. And we will, uh, what I said yesterday, the mission of God and God doing this right, this is we believe that God is on a mission to establish his kingdom here on earth forever. At the end of the story, the, re- the way it really ends is that God restores the world to the way it's supposed to be. Hear me when I say this. Our souls desperately want that. We know that the world is broken and we know there is more. And as Christians, we we get a glimpse of how it's supposed to be. And the kingdom of God, when we interact in that, is living it out. We are citizens of a different kingdom. That kingdom is alive and well today. The problem is we can't physically see it. As a matter of fact, you and I, as Christians, if you are a Christian in here, are the only physical manifestations of it. We reflect what it looks like for things to be the way they're supposed to be. Now, this is a huge uh, uh, piece in understanding the Sermon on the Mount because as we went through the Beatitudes, we recognized something. It's going, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, blessed are, I don't know, I forgot all the blessed. It's a good thing I taught on it last week, okay? Um, he's going through all these Beatitudes, and, and, and it's important for us not to go, those are things I need to do. I need to, to grind it out for meekness. I need to pick myself up and make sure that I, I strive after self-righteousness. But rather, because the kingdom of God has come and you are saved, you will respond, you will act like a child of the king. It's a repercussion of grace, not the other way around. 
And when we get that twisted, we miss the kingdom because the kingdom of this age says, get it right, work hard, climb the corporate ladder, do what you can. And the kingdom of God is completely upside down. and goes, it's not based on me, but because of what he has done, I respond with good fruit. I respond with works. I represent the king. I represent meekness. I represent uh, righteousness because the king is meek, because the king is righteous. So that's beautiful for us. That's beautiful for us to understand uh, uh, what that looks like. Now, there are responsibilities to that calling or election by Jesus Christ. And now he's going to go from the Beatitudes and, and, and have it kind of go into uh, uh, this next part of Scripture. So if you already haven't opened uh, to Matthew, that's good, because I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, okay? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 17, and and here's why I want to start there. Because in God's mission, here's ultimately what we believe. Here's a word that I'm going to throw on the screen with a definition. And it's kind of a Christian word outside of couples reconciling, but it's the word reconciliation. To reconcile something, you can Google this piece, because I'm going to give you the Google definition right now. It doesn't let me down before. Uh, to, To reconcile is to restore friendly relations between or cause to coexist in harmony, make or show to be compatible. Now, I want you to listen to that last part. Google gets it. Google understands that you are looking in this world for things that will never satisfy, that are synthetic versions of happiness, that are things that you think you want, but they're going to let you down. You want to know why? You want to know why? Because at the end of the day, you weren't made for those things. You were made for someone, and it's the glory of God. And when you lean into that, you find the hole that that has been so long there is now filled. Like, Suddenly it makes sense. Suddenly there's joy. Suddenly there's peace that you did not know before. You, you find yourself reconciled to God. Now we believe that's exactly what God through Jesus Christ is doing. Let me prove it to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says this. We're going to read all the way through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this is a throw it on a coffee mug, throw it on a t-shirt verse. I mean, some of you grew up in Awana's memorizing it, but check out what he's doing in this. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And what he is saying in his second letter is ultimately, if you find yourself in Jesus Christ, your old man is gone, and now you are a new creation. Now, I need you to hear that. Put your thinking caps on for a second. You are what we believe the world will be. You right now are a new creation in Jesus Christ in the same way we believe he's going to return and restore things to the way they are supposed to be in Jesus Christ. So you are a first fruit of what God is ultimately going to do. Now that's important because that means we right now as citizens of the kingdom reflect ultimately what he's going to do. And that gives us a job, doesn't it? And Paul knows that. So in 2 Corinthians, after he says at the end of 5.17, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God, yes and amen, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this is beautiful because um, in our redemption communities, um, you can have an ex-prostitute, an ex-stripper, sitting next to someone who was literally like born on the altar. So, so, so we have in our community what, what God rescues um, some from prostitution or stripping or alcoholism, and God rescues some from self-legalism, self-righteousness, self-pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps type theology. And here in this moment, two people sit in the room, and one is, is repenting before the community because she struggles with sleeping with men, and the other is repenting because they watched a, a PG-13 movie. You understand? And in this community, it's a beautiful display to recognize that no matter how far you are, 
in your righteousness, the gospel centers you. It's never good enough. And no matter how far you think you've gone in your sin, the gospel centers you because you could never go far enough. And here in this moment, anyone, everyone, two things about them. If you are a Christian, it doesn't matter where you've come from. God has reconciled you and it doesn't matter your story. You are a minister of reconciliation, which is beautiful, right? Because I was born with what is called a booming voice. I, I, I didn't, in my mother's womb, like try to expand my lungs to the best of my ability. I didn't try to come up with quick-witted remarks and, yeah, this is the type of person I'm going to be. No, no, no. I was born with these things. Now, there's moments where, like this last week, um, I was watching a Jungle Book with my family, and we're just watching it, and it's kind of a creepy part of the snake, and I'm like, boom, right? And I scare them. So, so there are moments where I can use my gifts for darkness, okay? <laughs> but, but, but I also recognize, as a citizen of the kingdom, God has wired me in a certain way. I did not choose to be like this. Now, there are hurts and there are wounds that may have uh, formed me in certain ways, but, but this voice that I have, I did not will it to happen. Check this out. And some of you just get things. Why? Like, like some of you can get out of computer like nobody's business. Like, like, like some of you just have athletic ability. Why? So some of you God has wired in such a way you can look at things like some beautiful mind Russell Crowe stuff and go, yeah, that makes sense. Like you see numbers, you see, you see words. Some of you have compassion and mercy like nobody's business. God has gifted you with those things to put you in areas as ministers of reconciliation. Because hear me, um, I don't do well in fourth grade classes, right? My booming voice makes kids cry. But your tender voice, your sternness in the moment, it needs to be stern. Your merciful um, ethos gives off this sense that kids can trust you. You are in environments as a, as a minister of reconciliation that I cannot be. And the same is true for me and compared to you because we have giftings as the body according to 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, that God has gifted us as a body of believers to work out these spiritual gifts as ministers of reconciliation. But he's not done because there's a playing out as God is reconciling the world back to himself. Here's how it continues on. Let's pick it up from uh, verse uh, 19. That is, he's going to go on in defining this. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I want you to look at in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors. That ambassadors, you see it as a noun, but in Greek it's a verb, meaning we are continuing to be ambassadors. We, this is what we are doing. If you don't know what an ambassador is, let me just lay this out because I know it might, you might not be familiar with this. An ambassador is an accredited diplomat sent by a country as, in its, as its official representative to a foreign country. I was looking up this word, just kind of trying to understand it in Greek and even in a modern way. And something I ran across, which was really amazing, for an ambassador to go from America to, to wherever, into a, an, another country, um, it's, if that ambassador does something wrong, it's not that that country that he's visiting goes, no, we are going to uh, uh, punish you ultimately. That ambassador represents that country so much that the country is held responsible. And now here is Jesus going, I am reconciling the entire world back to myself. And guess what? I have given you that ministry. I want you to go to be mechanics I want you to be teachers. I want you to be doctors. I want you to continue to invest yourself in ways that I have gifted you over and over and over. And as you go, you are a reflection of the king. 
So let me put it really simply. What you do and how you act looks on Jesus. People think of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, the way you act. You are his ambassador. You represent his kingdom. And that's a big deal. I like feel that weight for a second. It's a big deal. Like for some of us, we, we don't fully understand even how some of that plays out. Um, but in the end, listen to what he's saying. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So my actions need to represent in such a way, hear this, I know you're striving for joy found in sex, found in money, found in, in, in gossip, found in relationships, found in power, found in prestige, whatever it is. I know you're looking for joy in those corners, but I promise you, I'm imploring with you, be reconciled to God because everything you're looking for over there is actually found in the one place you never thought it would be. That is our job. That's our role. That is our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom. And this is what Paul's getting at. And our plea is simple. Listen to, to, to the plea in all of this. I think it's uh, really beautiful. 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the plea. doesn't matter what you've done. I get it. He made him, Jesus, to be sin. He didn't know sin. He didn't partake in sin. He was not at all dealing with any of that. But at the end of the day, he became sin on our behalf. And now we, who don't deserve it, are ministers of reconciliation. We get to spread that message. It's awesome. So let's get into Matthew 5. With that said, um, to be super transparent and clear, I want you to understand that um, as we read the Beatitudes, if it is a response to those first, uh, what we did is the the first 10 verses, um, if it is a response to grace, then the best way that I can juxtapose these two together is to go, when we act properly, as the Beatitudes, as to who God has made us, who Jesus has made us and formed us into his image in, then we are good ambassadors. Now, when that takes place, I didn't read verses 11 and 12 because verses 11 and 12, I, I said this last week, are like a hinge into getting into this salt and light passage. Now, this hinge um, reminds us of something. When we act this way, there are repercussions to living out this way in this age. And this is what it is. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my accounts. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. First and foremost, I love that he says, you're not the first one that this is going to happen to. But then we've got to wrestle with what this language of persecution is, right? Because we don't think um, in America the same way as third world uh, persecution, people being beheaded or whatever it is. And, and I think what I tried to unearth at the very end of our time last week, and I think why this bleeds into this, is we recognize when we go through the Beatitudes, it is a statement of ethics or morals or values that the kingdom of this age doesn't live by and there in turn we will look goofy man we people will lie about us people will not like that so let me just remind you of 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 what we were told in the beatitudes that as citizens of the kingdom we're not to be prideful tell me our culture does not pride itself on being prideful right like like no no you i mean listen to every single oh lord every single at the end of the post game man the whole world was against me you know what i'm saying and i just did it no one believed in me and i'm sitting there going no one believed in you bro like we paid you 50 million to believe we believed in you okay um so 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 there's this right we we're not prideful as citizens of the kingdom we do not find our comfort in this world that is huge we do not force our own way remember that word meekness means soft strength 
we care about rightness, we care about justice, we continue to care about those who don't have justice, we continue to engage in those areas, we have mercy, we are infants in evil, that is the, the, the pure in heart, we, we don't engage with things that are of this world that continue to push towards evil, and we strive for there to be peace. That is what it looks like to be a minister of reconciliation. More appropriate, that's what it looks like to be salt and light. So let's read our passage. Verse 13, Matthew 5. As he goes into this, he's going to give us two analogies, salt and light, okay? Now, if you grew up in church, you probably already know where this is going, um, how many things these, but but I want to point out some presuppositions that you might be bringing to the table. And I just want you to understand, um, one of the things, one of the presuppositions that you might be missing is Jesus is going to use salt and light, and he's going to talk about how that is is a representation of the Beatitudes, and we are ministers of reconciliation in that way. But if you can, for a moment, understand what he is saying between the lines, He is saying we are salt and light because you live in a world that is flavorless and purposeless and dark. Do you understand? That that we are these things because the world around us doesn't have purpose and it's in darkness. So it needs salt and light. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here's the first thing I want you to recognize. That word you, that first word you, um, it is not declaring, hey, you need to be salt and light. Think it's, I think it's important that you understand as Christians, and if you're not a Christian here, this sounds extremely arrogant, there is no plan B. We are the salt. And if there, there is no salt out there because of us, then there is no salt, period. We are the salt. It's like, okay, well, yeah, yeah, you are some of the salt. You are part of being. No, as Christians, if you're not out there, there is no salt. You are the salt, okay? Now, um, like I said, some of you grew up with um, some crazy ways. I heard a sermon probably eight years ago on salt, and he gave 13 distinctions of what salt is. And I was like, what? I don't know if Jesus was thinking of all those. One of them was crazy. He's like, you know, with salt, what we do is we throw it on the, the, the icy road so, so cars don't slip or so people don't slip. And I'm thinking, dude, I don't think it snowed once in Jerusalem before. What are you talking about? Like, so we try to like, and, and here's what I, I don't want to, you know, lose the forest and the trees and all this. I really think there are two things that Jesus is really getting at, the undergirding of what he's getting at. Uh, the, the first thing is it provides flavor. And the second thing, it, it stops decay. It, it preserves. I, and I, you probably have heard both of those things, but, but here's what I mean. The, the, the first one is we recognize um, if you were to leave your job or you to leave your neighborhood, would people even really care or notice? Like, do you make those places better? Like, do you make those places better? Like, if the first idea of this world is purposeless, is there something within you that drives towards purpose? And, and the other thing is that preservation piece, right? I, um, if you're not aware, obviously, they don't have refrigerators or cooling things at that time. So a big way that they would, they would preserve meat, because you can't keep it for long periods of time, is they would throw it in a batch of salt, right? They would cover it in salt because salt will preserve that meat. Now, I think that's important um, for us to understand because, again, sounding arrogant, our job as Christians is to enter into a world that is broken, and is continuing more and more to be broken. Societies left on their own without the, the gospel of Jesus Christ will slowly, and I know if you're not a Christian here, this sounds, again, super arrogant, but hear me, historically has been proven over and over will continue to go a downward spiral. Let me read a couple quotes just so you're aware. There's a book um, 
by a guy named Norman Russell. It's called uh, Lives of Our Desert Fathers. And he quotes in this book um, some monks in Egypt. Uh, Egypt. And, and one thing that, that these monks in Egypt have traditionally found, have always found to be true um, about Christianity is this. It is clear to all who dwell there, there in Egypt, that through the Christian, uh, um, that through the Christians, the world is kept in being. And that through them, two human life is preserved in honor, honored by God. Uh, John Del Husay is a professor at uh, Phoenix Seminary, came and talked with about 20 of us in preparing for the Sermon on the Mount. And he had such a great quote that I thought was helpful. This is what he said. History has proven time and time again that societies do not improve, but in fact get worse when Christians are forced to leave. So, so I, I, I need you to, to, to understand, it's, it's not coming from an arrogance, but, but here's the world we live in. You can believe what you believe. I can believe what I believe. Okay? The problem with a relative truth philosophy is that eventually it comes to head when you think is something is right and I think is something right. And what I think is right, societally, we, we, uh, we disagree and I'm lower in. But, but slowly but surely, because um, there is no ultimate standard of right, we slowly but surely go lower and lower and lower and lower, um, so much so that towards right before the fall of Rome, pedophilia is legalized. We see this in culture, uh, in culture uh, time and time again. The idea of what uh, Russell and Del Husay are trying to get across is that we in a society um, through the kingdom of God, this, I don't know any better way to say it without saying, like, look how awesome we are. We hold things together. That is our job. That's our job to help be good for our, our situations, our, our jobs, our families, our streets, our neighbors, our classmates. We are to be the good they see. They are to see the reflection of the things, of the way that things are supposed to be in us. We're to be salt. Now, um, there's something I want you to notice in this salt piece, right? Because that first word, you, um, in English, I've talked about this maybe a hundred times up here, um, right? What? There's no, there's no plural version of you in English, is there? So every time you, word, you read the word you, you think it's talking to you, right? And it's not, okay? Because what he's trying to say is y'all, use. He's trying to unearth all of you, which is big, right? Because let's go back to the booming voice thing. Um, uh, God has wired me to be where I am, to do what I am, because he has not wired you to do that. And now as Christians, understand this, I don't go to dinner tonight, I don't sit at the table, and I don't have my chicken, I don't have my, my uh, salad, I don't have my potatoes, and then I say, I need some salt, and I pour salt on one section of the plate. That's not how salt works. I take a bite of chicken, bite of potatoes, and I take a spoonful of salt and eat it. Nobody does that. The reality is salt, by its very nature, is meant to be spread out. Salt at its core is meant to be spread out over all that we eat. And hear me, all too often our introspective, be here, all here, not care about the world around us, not care about the injustices of the world, homie, don't play that when it comes to the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. We are salt meant to be spread out over all facets of our culture, over societies, over our schools, over and over and over in places again and again and again. That is how salt works. May we be diligent to engage the world around us. Now, um, there's some of this that, that uh, I think kind of plays at uh, even my, my, my personal heart. Uh, this last week on Wednesday, uh, Corbin came in and uh, he said, somebody's crying for help. Somebody's crying for help. And um, before 15, 15 minutes before uh, that, he had come inside and I was sitting on the couch um, doing something stupid. I don't know. I was watching Netflix or I don't know what I was doing. Um, and he comes in, he says, the people across the street are fighting. They're fighting. 
And I said, that's fine. It's none of our business. Let it go on, right? Um, it's none of our business, buddy. And so they, they fight. Well, he comes in 10, 15 minutes later. He says, somebody's calling for help. So I go outside, and uh, Gail is uh, across, across the street from us, um, and my other neighbor are running up. She had shot herself in the chest. And exit wound like went right through her chest and there she is at her doorstep she tried to get out of her house crying for help and slowly but surely she's losing her voice because she's gargling blood in her lungs um, and she ends up dying on friday now now here's what's interesting um, about this I, I don't feel the weights or i'm not losing sleep over the fact that i didn't engage um but it does it did make me question for a long time when i found out on friday she died um because she was whisked away and then friday morning she passed away um i mean like if I am a citizen of this world, what I deem most important is comfort. I mean, think of how much this world runs from comfort or runs towards comfort. We, we, we have medication for it. We have vacations for it. We have like seat warmers for it. I mean, we have everything we possibly want, protection in our homes. That's what this world values is comfort. But that's not what the kingdom of God values. And in that moment, I chose to be a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. I chose comfort over being salt. Instead of going out and saying, man, I need to engage this situation. Our neighbors are fighting. I want, to, I want to provide them something that otherwise they would not have because hear me, there's no one in that neighborhood could give them anything better than I could have given them. What has this world offered them? I mean, I'm telling... Listen, personal testimony. This world has but let me down time and time again. It's given me drug addict parents. It's led me into foster care. I've lived in crack houses, homeless in parks. What has this world given me? Nothing. It's offered me nothing. And at the end of the day, that's all the philosophies of the world can offer is purposelessness. But that's not what salt is. It provides, ple- it provides flavor. It provides uh, preservation. And in that moment, I have a message they need to hear. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And maybe for a moment, you don't want to be that guy. I get it. Like when someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, great job today. And you're like, all glory to Jesus Christ, man. I get that you don't want to be that dude. But the recognition of the fact that at the end of the day, you are in that place to bring glory to God, to be a minister of reconciliation, at least needs to be on our mind. Because I'm telling you, the comforts, The pride, the prestige, the money of this world is going to go after your heart. It wants it. I mean, listen to the the dictation to Cain. Be careful. Sin is at your door, and it's crouching, and it desires to overtake you. But I have to remind myself that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, when we think of salt, um, we miss the part that it could lose its saltiness, which some of you might disagree scientifically. I could talk about that in the lobby if you, why I just actually would agree that it's true. But, but um, here's what I think is unique about that is um, when we process salt losing its flavor, um, I immediately go to Judges. If you, don't, if you weren't with us in the book of Judges, we look at the people of God in the Old Testament, and we remember a people who God has said, I want you to be a representation to all the nations around you. I want them to see you and when they see you they go there's something about that people and when they get close enough they recognize it's their god but they weren't doing that and so what happened is as god sends them out puts them in all their other tribes they slowly but surely become like the people they are around hear me they lose their saltiness they lose their saltiness what good are they at that moment now, that's the first analogy. The second one um, that Jesus gives us in our role as citizens in the kingdom of God is, uh, is verse 14. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Um, This is actually the only imperative. We'll read that last part in a second. But this is the only imperative in this whole passage, that part at the, the middle of 16, in the same way, let your light shine. An imperative meaning Jesus is going, you need to get out there and shine, right? But furthermore, the you in all these things is the same as before. It's this plural you, that we are many lights that's shining. Now, um, I think for the most part, we know that us being light is kind of a biblical premise as the people of God. Like, I think we get, like some of us would go, no, I need to, this little light of mine, I I need to let it shine. This little light of mine, I've got to let it shine. Okay. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine, right? Um, we know the songs, and, and we kind of get that, that, that understanding under what, what's going on as, as people of light. But I, I don't think there's a well-developed form of that theology. So give me like five minutes to explain why Jesus uses light and kind of develop this uh, theology out. So uh, turn to the, the book of John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. I'll be quick in this, I promise. Um, this is what it says in, in uh, uh, the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament, if you're, if you're turning there. Um, and we're going to start in chapter 1. This is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not, was not anything made that was made. So there's this declaration. He's talking about Jesus in this moment. Here's this Word. God creates all things through his Word. That Word that, that is creating everything in Genesis 1 is Jesus. Jesus was there. Jesus is not just with God. Jesus is God. Now, Jesus comes in the flesh, we find out in verse 14, but here's what we're told about Jesus. Verse 4, in him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, okay? So here's, we got to develop this out, tease this out a little bit. Here's what's happening. Uh, Jesus comes on the scene, and all around them is darkness. All around them is death. There's no hope. It's purposeless. Remember that. So in this moment, Jesus comes, and he offers life. I am the life that you've been looking for. I am this life. You're seeking it in other places. I am the life. Now, he uses this to go, this life is the light of men. This is the thing that people have been striving for. This is what the Old Testament has been pointing towards. It's found in Jesus. This life is light. Now, up to this point, everything has been used in a certain tense, hasn't it? Past, present, future, that's the tenses. It has been used in the past tense. Look at what it says. Let's, let's, I mean, you can see this, right? Um, And the word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him. And without him, not anything uh, that was made. Verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the tense changes, doesn't it? So that light that is in Jesus suddenly goes, the light shined. No, it doesn't say shine, does it? The light shines. And darkness cannot overcome it. So suddenly it goes from this past tense to say, right now, the light of Jesus Christ is still shining. Well, you can connect the dots, can't you? It's us. It's us. Now, th- this, is, this, is, this is big, because now we recognize um, in, in being an ambassador for Jesus Christ and, and us shining into a world that doesn't see things clearly, we see that the darkness will not be able to overcome it in that kingdom. Now, this is a development of that, that light, but you don't have to turn there. In Philippians 2, uh, 14 through 15, um, I I, want to go there for a second. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read this. But here's what I want us to understand about being light. Now he's going to say, let's take that light, that you are the light. I am the light within you, however you want to word it. You would not take a light and you would not hide it. You wouldn't light a candle and put like a bucket over it, right? That's not what you would do. 
Or, or you, you're like a city on a hill and you wouldn't block out that city. No, a light is there for a reason. You wouldn't hide that light. And I think a lot of us have grown up thinking that means like cowering away from people. Like I'm afraid to go talk to Gail before she shot herself. Like, man, what if I go there and I tell her, you know, you know she needs Jesus and like she just thinks I'm crazy. What, like, and I think that's how we've thought of hiding. And, and maybe that's true, but I don't know if it's all the truth. Because here's the reality. I know from Facebook, some of you have no problem quote-unquote, letting your light shine about Jesus. And that one post you put about Jesus, I'm like nauseated by the fact that the other 99 posts you have put, I'm sitting there thinking, dear God, please don't let anyone know they go to this church. Do you understand? So it's not, it's not that you're hiding this light because of cowardness. You're hiding this light because you're not being the light. That, like, if you were to act as children of the light, you would be doing these things and not this, okay, I'm, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, oh, and Jesus is so good, hashtag redemption Peoria. Good Lord, please take that off. Do you understand? Like, like the, 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 the difference is that we think for a moment it's our verbal proclamation, which is true. But if our life doesn't reflect it, what are we? We're hiding this light. We're dimming it down. We're making Jesus look bad. And as funny as it is, Man, it's killing us. It's just killing us. We don't look anything different from the world. We look like the Canaanites and judges. May God have mercy on us. Now, he's, he's not done. Um, I think there's a tangible nature to this in, in Philippians 2, uh, 14 and 15. Because I want us to, to, to be very pragmatic when we think of what it means to be light. Because some of us, maybe that does mean like you at, in, you know, you're at GCU, you jump on your, your, uh, the table and you go, I want to tell everyone about Jesus. Or maybe you're at work and you send out a memo that why everyone needs Jesus. And you go through the, you know, the four pillars and whatever it is. But at the end of the day, um, I think there's more to this. And there's a pragmatic side of us being light. And just one aspect of a million other aspects that we can be light is found in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let's work this backwards. We shine as lights in this world amidst a crooked and twisted generation. We do this because we are innocent children of God. Now hear me when I say this. The only way this takes place is verse 14 in Paul's mind in Philippians here. Look what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that. So you want to be in a twisted and corrupt generation. You want to shine as a light. Paul's very simple layout here, and I would read Philippians 2 as a whole so you can see this, is to go stop complaining. Stop bickering. Stop whining. The world does that. Our hope isn't in our jobs. Our hope isn't in our children. Those are, those are terrible gods. Stop. You don't live for this kingdom. Do your job well. Care about it. Not every time your boss walks out of the room, you whine about him. Stop so that you can be a light amongst a twisted and corrupt generation. That's one part. This is why Jesus has called us to respond to grace in the way that he has. That we would be good reflections of him. And there are hundreds in the New Testament, literally hundreds of tangible ways that he has given us to do this. Ways that we can respond to grace properly. Now, I want to read a quote to you from John Stott. I don't have it on the screen. Some of that is intentional. Some of that is because I didn't get it to Josh on, in time. Um, but John Stott um, was a pastor in England, long dead now. He is um, very influential for the redemption leadership team as a whole. Um, matter of fact, we use 
um, the guy who replaced him, uh, Chris Wright's book, uh, The Mission of God's People, to, um, uh, to be a part of our leadership training. We feel like it's, it's a good resource. And um, John Stott has a great quote. And so it's not on the screen. You're just going to have to listen. It's kind of long. But if you would just listen to it, I, I think you can hear the beauty of what Jesus is getting at with this salt and light language. Okay? Here's the beauty of this. Our Christian habit is to bewile the world standards with an air of rather self-righteous dismay. We criticize its violence, dishonesty, immorality, disregard for human life, and materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with a shrug. But whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Let me put it to you like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there's no sense in blaming the house. That is what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? Similarly, if if meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there is no sense in blaming the meat. That's what happens when bacteria is left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standards decline until it becomes like a dark night or a stinking fish, there is no sense in blaming society. That is what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing our society? And at the end of the day, if we would play this out right, we would see that so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Unfortunately, America, let's get political for a second, has taken the language of salt and light, hasn't it? We are the light of the world. No, hear me. Give it 200 years. Well, I want it to go longer than that. I really like America. Let's say 500 years. The, the point is, we use this language, and America doesn't have, and I know this goes without saying, but Donald don't have, Hillary don't have, and nobody have the answers like Jesus has the answers. And when we live this out, they will see our good works, and they will give glory to God. And hear me, when they give glory to God, they are made complete again. They know what it's like to be fully human. They have found the way it is supposed to be. It is for their own good that we are salt and light. Let's stop blaming the house. Let's stop blaming the meat. It's our job. It's our job. So this is where I'll finish. Um, uh, If you don't know the story of a guy named Father Damien, I want to tell it to you real quickly, and I'll be be short with this. Um, Father Damien uh, grew up as a blacksmith. His dad was a blacksmith, actually, and, and he was apprenticing under him. And in the 1800s, specifically 1860, he felt called by God to be a missionary to Hawaii. Now, um, he, he goes to Hawaii, and, and he's a Catholic, and, and he goes there, and he, he just man, feels this huge call um, from God to, to go to an island that is called Molokai. Now, the reason he goes there is because at the time, leprosy was just everywhere on the Hawaiian islands. And so the Hawaiian government said, you know, we need to figure this out. Let's take all the lepers and put them on this one peninsula, Molokai. Now, if you don't know about leprosy, it's a terribly contagious disease. It's an awful disease. You might have seen pictures, but honestly, it could be summed up with the fact that your body comes, becomes completely numb and just literally begins to deteriorate. Like you would shut a door and you wouldn't even know you close it hard and your, your hand literally just falls off. Like it becomes weak, it, it bacteria eats you away, and it's extremely contagious. And so they, they isolate all these uh, men and women with leprosy to this island. This is a, a journal entry that Father Damien says um, on November 25th, 1873. At that time, this is when he feels called to, to go to the island, the development of the illness was horrible and the number of deaths quite considerable. The miserable condition of the lepers was so terrible that the colony well deserved the name given to it, a living cemetery. 
So he sees this, and now he feels called to go there. And as a blacksmith, he goes there. He knows how to work with his hands. There's a church that's kind of run down. He helps build that church up. He makes another church. He builds himself a home. And slowly but surely, he begins to preach to the lepers. But here's what he does. He does not offer self-righteous swag because he's better than them. He doesn't come on the island and go, all right, I've got it. You need it. I'm better. You're worse. I'm the master. You're the student. Listen to the language that he gravitates towards in his journals. Listen to this. As for me, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all for Christ. Because of this, when I preach, I normally say, we lepers. When I go into a hut, I always begin by offering to hear their confession. Those who refuse the spirit, um, this spiritual help are not deprived of corporate assistance, which is given to all without distinction. He goes in there and he goes, man, there's a lot of cussing in that bar. I'm not going in there. Like how many, G- how many drunks did Jesus rub elbows with, man? How many prostitutes he, he conversed with? Brother Damien is, is living this out to go, no, I am entering in the darkness. Salt is not left to be by itself. Light is not meant to be hidden. I am entering into the darkness. One of his final uh, appeals, he um, doesn't just engage um, from an ethereal sense that he is lepers. He eventually gets to the disease. This is what he says. You can see for yourself, he sends pictures to his brother so you can look up um, what he ended up looking like. You can see for yourself in the portraits that the destruction of the illness has caused, uh, what, what the destruction of the illness has caused in my whole body. That is at least a small light of hope. I'm sorry, there is at least a small light of hope which could restore me, if not a miracle, but I do not want to tempt the Lord. Uh, uh, as I am persuaded that the will of the Lord is that I die in the same way and in the same sickness as my afflicted sheep. Um, man, let's go full circle with this beast. That's Jesus. Like Jesus gets off the couch puts the freaking computer away, and engages Gail. That's what Jesus does. He didn't come for comfort. He didn't come for prestige. He didn't come for those things. He entered into the darkness. Imagine how many cuss words he heard, how many coarse jokes he listened to. Imagine how much drunkenness he was around. Imagine all the, 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 the sexual uh, uh, um, intimacy that he saw within the culture that he had to engage and, and, and say, go and sin no more, uh, but I don't cast this first stone because I forgive you of that sin. He is doing truth. He is doing grace all at once, and it's beautiful, but it requires him to leave his place of eternal comfort to enter into our brokenness. And he has called us to do the same. He's called us to do the same. May that be true of us. My man, Charles Spurgeon, to finish it out, says every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Let's pray.